a new year full of surprises. But one thing is always predictable. Postage costs go up. Stamps.com gives you crazy discounts of up to 89% off USPS and UPS services. So when postage goes up, your business will barely notice the change. Stamps.com is like your own personal post office, wherever you are. You can even take orders on the go with the mobile app. No lines, no traffic, no waiting. Schedule package pickups, automatically find the cheapest and fastest shipping options, and seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. There's even a supply store where you can stock up on mailing supplies, labels, even printers. Stamps.com has been indispensable for over 1 million businesses just like yours. All you need is a computer or phone and printer. Take a chunk out of your mailing and shipping costs this year with Stamps.com. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a special offer that includes a four-week trial, plus free postage, and free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Ruff. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for Season 8, Episode 9. Uh, we have Zach back in the studio with us this week. Hey, guys. He's done with his wife's birthday honey-do list from last week. I suppose we'll forgive you for leaving us I appreciate that. without you for a week. Uh, and, of course, Mike's joining us, as always. Yo. Yo, he says. I like it. I dig it. Why not? Let's go with yo. Today, we were discussing Episode 9. In this episode, there were kind of three areas of discussion. One was the handwritten notes of Detective Hardy, where a few things were revealed. Uh, we moved on to uh, listener Julie Hahn, who came on and discussed the surveillance footage and security systems at Target in the early 2000s. And then we ended up with a computer forensic analysis report. So we've got a lot of listener questions. So right after a short break, we're going to go ahead and get started. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. So real quick before we get into questions, Mike ran them through for me, and there's a couple of things that we discussed today that aren't covered in the questions. One is uh, nobody seemed to catch or or didn't didn't comment about it, but um, the uh, the bank records. I thought that was that was pretty interesting. When we looked through the handwritten notes, they appear to. It's hard to tell with the redactions, but the way I was reading it, it looked like Hardy did in fact. Re- we know for a fact he did in fact request. Deb, it says Deborah and Paul Perringer's cell phone numbers, uh, the phone records for those. And all we have in the report is Paul's work number. So we're going to look even further into that and see if if there were any cell phone records actually recovered for Deb. Because another thing that we could use from that is location data. You know, if they're outgoing calls, then, you know, we've learned from the Anand Syed case that you can't use the location data with any amount of accuracy on incoming calls. But for example, she says she called the tree service. If she had a cell phone and called the tree service, 
that will give us an accurate location as to where she was at when she did that. So we're going to keep pushing forward, um, working with Allison and with the Fort Worth PD and my upcoming trip to try to see if we can track that down. And and also there was uh, another discrepancy that nobody asked questions about uh, on the report was the the timing difference with uh, Emilio, Emilio Villa Gomez Gutierrez, where in the the handwritten notes, it says that, you know, he, that Hardy was made aware that an officer had, an officer LeBlanc had pulled over Emilio, thought he fit the description, and then it wasn't until a month later when, when he actually spoke to him. There's also quite a bit left out of the report, the main report that was in the notes, like the, the presence of Hugo, uh, doesn't mention that the address that Emilio gave was not the actual address uh, as to where he lived. I did say something about the, the last name differences and, um, I had, I had a couple people reach out and say that that's, how do they put it? Um, sometimes in the, the Latin community, you have your last name and then your mother's maiden name or your mother's last name. So like his last name, his surname would be Villa Gomez and Gutierrez would be his mother's maiden name. So it wasn't necessarily that he gave the, the wrong information there. That I guess, uh, real quick. Those are a couple topics that I just wanted to at least touch on that mentioned that we covered them this week that might jog anybody's memory. And then Zach, what did you? I haven't talked to you in a couple of weeks, but what did you think about the episode? And in, in, uh well, talking about the Emilio thing, the one thing that I possibly thought of, and it's, maybe it's nothing, but in the Melgar case, there was an instance where they tried to talk to the housekeeper. I believe it was the housekeeper or mm-hmm. the girlfriend, and it was it was they talked to a totally different person that had the same name. Yeah. Oh gosh, I don't remember the details, but I do remember. But, but remember, there was a there was an incident where they it was a younger woman they were supposed to be talking to, and they talked to an older woman, right. but it had the same name. So I almost wonder if this was with the address discrepancy. If this was a similar thing where they, you know, they pulled over this one Emilio, he gave them the address, and then they when they tracked down Emilio, they found a different Emilio Villa Gomez. Well, so interestingly, the way they tracked him down was not by his name. Okay. Um, and some stuff we're going to get into a little bit this week, but they actually tracked him down by his vehicle. Okay. So that's probably not the same, or it probably is the same person then. Right. Yeah. And, and it, it, yeah, I'm pretty sure. Well, yeah. Cause when he talked to him, remember, he said, I did get the tickets okay. that day. He said he got the tickets, but he, he lost them. He, he put them through the wash or okay. something. It just struck me when I was thinking about the, this with the Melgar case, how that happened in the Melgar case. Mm-hmm. It just to me, the, you know, not to say that I would even say that, you know, Emilio is a suspect I and mean, we don't really know much about him at all. But just, I guess, as a person of interest, somebody who comes up, it's just interesting the way, first of all, that he wasn't really pursued that much Mm -hmm. or at all. There's only the one conversation. The fact that we don't have any record of Hardy even attempting to get an alibi from him, ask him where he was at that day. It doesn't say that he ever even asked him. It doesn't say that he called his work. That Hugo was left out of the report is weird. It's interesting. And then when we look through the file, some listeners pointed me out. And again, this is stuff we're going to talk about this week. But if you listeners noted notice some things in the reports that I hadn't connected the dots on, and so one of those things is they're they're looking for this car, they're looking for this ninety one Lincoln, but there's nothing in those entries in the report that say we're looking for Emilio Villagomez's car, and uh, so I I don't want to I don't want to get too far ahead of ourselves there, but the, but the car thing is interesting. I actually found something else in my files about Emilio too that just make the, the whole situation around him is odd and it's. It's just interesting that there was no no attempt to really investigate him at all. So do we know anything about his background as far as like if he had any criminal background that would push him to this case? Um, from what I've been able to find and from listener Don McElhaney, who who's done some background checks as well, 
I don't see that he has any prior criminal record. Uh, if I remember correctly, there 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 is some offense later. It's nothing violent, any anything like this, but it doesn't look like the guy's got a record. Okay, because I was just trying to think of how the note would come into play with him. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, the note definitely wouldn't wouldn't. So, so the, you know, the issue with him as as a suspect is that's why I said I wouldn't even consider him a, a suspect, but definitely a person of interest that I'm curious about is if he were involved, he obviously would have to know something. It would be for a personal reason. It doesn't look like anything was, you know, of, of substantial value was stolen. The attack to me looks personal. And um, with the note, he would obviously have to know that Lloyd was a, was a former cop. So there would have to be some, there, some connection there that we're unaware of for him to really be a, a viable suspect. And the only other thing that came to mind through this episode was the discussion about the font of the letter. But I know there's some listener questions, so we can get into that when we get there. Yeah, I think that's covered coming up here. All right. Our first question comes from Donna. Is it possible that the font on the note in question is set to default and it was Agnes who changed it whenever she typed a document, but didn't have the know-how to change the default settings? See, she brings up a really good point because that's actually my first point. I know in the episode, you actually misspoke a little bit. And I don't know if Mm -hmm. you caught that or I know I caught it after looking. You said that the note was sans serif and that the the other letters had the serif, and it's the opposite way. Okay. The note has the serifs, the little feet. Okay. Which, in my eyes, plays totally different than if it was the other way around. Okay. Because a lot of times, that font does appear to be Times New Roman, which is typically a default font. Uh-huh. And, and which, say, which, which one is Times New Roman? The, the font that is on the letter that was in Lloyd's leg. Okay, that's Times New Roman. Yes, that's with the little feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do have a background on this. I actually did design work before right. I started tattooing. So I do, I, this does ring a bell to me uh-huh. where that would be a default, a normal default lettering, especially at that time frame. Okay, because now it's usually that, is it courier? It's, it's, or, it's uh, usually Arial. Arial, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Courier is through, a, is usually like a notepad. Looks like font. a typewriter. It looks like yeah. a typewriter font. Right, right, right. But, but Arial is typically like the the new Microsoft Word, but. I would mm-hmm. say at that time, Times New Roman was a big one. Okay. And that appears to be Times New Roman to me. Uh-huh. And I think that that's a default setting and that maybe Agnes did change the fonts on her other letters. Yeah. So, um, Jenea, the one that, that caught this originally mm-hmm. had messaged me and said that, you know, kind of basically what you said, not, not about the, the which was which, but she's mm-hmm. like, oh, I was looking at that differently. Like Agnes must change the font. And then whoever did this didn't, you know, mm-hmm. meaning that it was a default. But then through our discussion, we look because because you know I told her like what are the because they're very very similar mm-hmm. you know it's not like she's you know if Agnes was doing that she's changing a font every time she types something in order to change it so al- almost unnoticeable to an un- almost unnoticeably different font you know, it's not like she's changing it to like a script font or something mm-hmm. like that so like why go through the trouble of doing that when you when you type something but do we know that so the only thing that I've seen is that one. That was the other thing that she clarified. I misunderstood her post mm-hmm. to say that all of them, and she said, no, she said, to be, to be fair, I, there's, there's multiple letters, but she could only really see the one, the font on the top one. And mm-hmm. it's one that we know for a fact that Agnes typed, you mm-hmm. can tell by the context Which, of which it. could just be an accident that she changed the font. Right. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, certainly there are, there are many possibilities mm-hmm. and I, and I, and, it, and I will say that I think they're all equally probable. There's, I don't think there's any way to narrow it down. To me, it seems unlikely that the, if Agnes is going to type out that letter, mm-hmm. that she types the letter and says, oh, I want to change this to a font that is 
almost exactly the same as the default, mm-hmm. but it's very, very slightly different. And then I mentioned to Janae when we were talking, uh, she said, that, you know, she's like, well, yeah, but I don't think she'd have the technical know-how to change the default. And I, I told you, I had a, I had an e-machines Windows PC mm-hmm. at that time in my bedroom. Yeah. You know, it, it, I had a little apartment and I said, I, I didn't have any technical, you know, t- computers were a new thing for me back then, but I, I remember changing the font to whatever I wanted. And it was like, just, you just clicked a box that said default. And then she went and checked and found out that is the case. So it's not like when you change a font mm-hmm. in that version of, of word back then, it was pretty, it's actually more difficult now okay. to change your default setting. But, but so th- that's just, just food for thought mm-hmm. on the font thing. Um, again, I don't, th- I don't, I don't disagree with you that it, the, you know, if the times new Roman was the was the default, then and Agnes changed it, then that would be an indicator that was printed there. Well, see, and my and the reason I brought this up is because it was misspoken the episode. Okay, and not to say it on you, but I I feel like if it if it was the way that it was spoken in the episode, uh-huh. where the the note did not match what she had typed previously, uh-huh. then that means the person would have had to change it. Okay, so that is the, the case because I'm kind of getting confused here too. So so we know that that the note on the leg was a different font than the note. Correct. Print. Yeah. Yes. So one or so either one of two things happen. Either, and I think these are the two possibilities. Agnes, when she types a letter or typed that letter, mm-hmm. went in and changed the font off from the default to her preferred font, which is almost the same, mm-hmm. and printed it out. And then the killer printed it out, which again would would have to be Deborah. It's ten in the morning. If, if it was printed at ten in the morning. You know, Deborah was there around then. We mm-hmm. don't know exactly when she got there, and Lloyd was home too. But if, but if she's the one that printed it, then then if Agnes always changed or changed the font for hers, then the the leg note would be printed in the default font, and that's why it would be different. And the other option is that Agnes has changed the default font, so all the stuff she prints, uh, which again, so just for everybody to know, I'm hoping to get a better look at the evidence. One thing that's very frustrating for me right now in reading this, I almost, I almost wish we had Maurice back because at least he took 900 pictures mm-hmm. at the crime scene because you know, a lot of people have said, well, if Lloyd printed something that morning, then where is it? Which is a great question. That, that is my question too. I was going to get to that is somebody printed something at 10 o'clock, regardless if right. it was Deborah or Lloyd or a, a third person that was the killer. Somebody printed something. Right. Where is that document? Right. Because it couldn't have been Agnes. And we know the other letter was typed by Agnes. Right. Yeah. That's not it. And also it was only a four minute time span. So mm-hmm. it wasn't that long list. Yeah. Something quickly was typed up and, and printed out while Agnes wasn't home. And, and people have said, well, where is it? Good question. But what we can't assume is that it's not there because nothing's documented. Yeah. Was there a trash can next to the computer desk? I bet there was. Was there anything in the trash can? Was there an inventory? When you know you have, it's, it's frustrating because you 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 know you ha- you're, as soon as you see this note on the leg and there's a computer and printer in the house, you would think that the CSI would be thinking, okay, this this is something potentially we need to know and start documenting and photographing every single piece of paper in that house. Mm. We, we don't have that, so the note could have been sitting on the desk. Underneath the the computer after it was or on the ground underneath the computer ever was knocked down we wouldn't know because we don't have a photo of it and it wasn't documented mm-hmm. so, so I don't know there's just a lot of possibilities personally I don't think that it, and, and this is just 100 percent just my personal opinion this is not you know there, there's there's no evidence I think to sway it one way or the other in my opinion it seems less likely to me that Agnes when she goes to type a letter 
changes the font again because it's not like you know back then you remember cha- changing fonts and stuff like that was kind of a new deal mm-hmm. uh, remember an email you could do it and people would send you an email like why is there why are there letters blue and pretty comic sans yeah exactly mm-hmm. but so if it was something like that sure but it's like we go print a letter change the font to an almost identical font and then let it go back to default i, I think it's more likely that either that was the, the the one she printed on was the default font or that she liked that one better and had changed it to the default font. That to me seems more likely than her changing it. But, but again, that's just my opinion. But, you know, all we really know is that something that took less than four minutes to type was typed up mm-hmm. at 9.57, starting at 9.57 in the morning and then printed at 10.01 a.m., four minutes later. Yeah. The one thing, and I don't, you've seen the log, I haven't seen it, is if any other word processing documents have been opened recently. And I don't mean that morning, but I mean like maybe she uses a different word processing app. You know what I mean? Like there was notepad at that time. There was other things. Somebody know. mentioned that. And uh, I believe in the log, there's notation of her opening up uh, the day before. Okay. Like opening up her word documents. Like she had like open letter to God. Cause I think that would, yeah. that would help this a lot too, to figure out the font. Well, I, I think that one thing that needs to be done is a computer forensic analysis now. Because another thing that gets pointed out, I know we have a question about this here coming up, uh, but L- Richard Plunkett listener uh, noticed, and I and I saw it, but I, you know you got to remember when I'm when I'm reading these documents and trying to write an episode, I, I I can't get sucked into every rabbit hole. But one of the rabbit holes is that computer forensic report is missing a page when it lists the activity for the day. The list starts with number two, so where's number? We don't know what happened before that, uh, so we don't exactly know. But I know that it does list activity from the day before but you know something that could be very easily done would be for them to open up that computer and the hard drive and look and see what was the default type font for Mm -hmm. you know these are things that that could be done i find it really difficult to believe that they weren't able to prove or disprove if it came from that printer i've been told that you know with i think he says in report or in his testimony which i forgot to post which i i'm getting up i got the report up and not his testimony that it's you know the print the 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 paper the Lloyd's leg note was consistent with an inkjet printer mm-hmm. is all he said. But I've always been told that there's like almost like a fingerprint with those printers. And there's another cache or storage in the the printer itself that should tell you what document was printed there. And I just don't know why that stuff wasn't. And to me, that's another miss on the defense. You know, as as Doctor Amber said, they should have had a DNA expert. They should have had a computer expert too. Yeah, and I don't, I, I don't care what, how you feel, whether guilt or innocent of, of Deborah. I'm taking Deborah totally out of this equation, right? Yeah, I, I just want to know where what happened at that point because yeah. because if it is Lloyd, then it's it's presumably nothing. You know, it could have right. been anything. But if it wasn't Lloyd and it was the killer, then somebody's in that house for a long time. Yeah, in, in my opinion, if that note was printed from that. If that note was printed in the house at ten in the morning, then Deb's guilty. No question. To me, there's there's, there's no question about it. Yeah, or at least involved. Mm-hmm. You know, somewhere or another. Because because she's the only person that we know would have there. been there. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was about ten fifteen when Mabel across the street saw Deb. You know, walking. She was there around ten. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't know what time. It seems like from all the different. If you piece together all the witness statements, and I have written to Deb finally, and I, you know, I, I have enough questions for her that I wrote to her. I'm waiting to hear back mm-hmm. about her day, and, I, and one thing I asked for clarification on is, is her morning because it seemed from the witness statements that she did arrive there around eight or eight thirty, leave, and then come back again around ten. So she may not have even been there yet at ten. 
We, I think she was there at 10 15, mm-hmm. but you know, it could have been 10 05, 10 10. You know, we don't, we don't have any witness sightings saying her car was there at 10 for sure. I think there's a lot of things that could be answered and I'm going to push for IPTX to, you know, with Allison to see, you know, let, let's see if we can get a, a more detailed, thorough computer forensic analysis could solve the case, you know, and it, it could now, now if we find out that the note wasn't printed on that computer, which, which, Again, 100% just my opinion. I don't think that it was. It just doesn't make sense. There's too many things in my mind, and that's just my pea brain just spitballing. But it just it doesn't make sense at that, that note that you're looking at a crime that looks like it was just you know an explosion of anger. Uh, that that anyone would would like premeditate the note, but it, but then it couldn't have been. I don't know. There's just it just doesn't make sense to me. But anyway, oh Colleen Barnett, right? And that doesn't make sense. But anyway, if the if the if the note wasn't printed there, that doesn't mean Deborah didn't do it, is what I'm getting at. But if the note was printed there at ten o'clock in the morning, then I think that's really strong evidence that she did. I'm not saying anything, but it's it's damn near it's really hard to explain a short letter being typed and printed yeah. at ten o'clock in the morning. Without being saved or without yeah, that's super hard to. Yeah, so he that's just a super crazy coincidence. Even if it is Lloyd, like why why would he just go in there, quickly type something, print it? You know what I mean? Right. And where would it feels like if that was the case? Let's say that like he needed something for work real quick and he typed it out. He it seems like he would like put it on the table, like the kitchen table or something, so he wouldn't forget it. Right, something that you're not going to save. Yeah. And if, yeah, it's some, you're going to want to have it in a place where you could retrieve it quickly. Mm-hmm. You made it really quick and you're taking it with you or you're doing something with it. It wouldn't be buried under anything. It would be out. And yeah. Not, it, yeah. It seems like it. I don't know. That's crazy. Cause like, yeah, I don't know. A lot of stuff in this case is like leaning me towards innocence, but that fact right there should definitely not be glossed over. Yeah. Like, that's a that's tough one. tough. Yeah. No, I, that's where I'm at with it. Honestly, like I. I don't. I don't even know anymore. Like, know. there's so much that that does say that she's innocent, but like that particular thing right now is like the big holdup of like how how is this not something? You know what I mean? Like, where is it? It's got to be somewhere, right? I just want to look at like the crime scene photos again. But that the uh, computer is in evidence still, right? Like they can. I would guess so. I, I would think so. Yeah, they can. I don't know, dude. That's a real, that's a real hard coincidence to get past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that uh, on the morning they die, hours before they die, there's a a, a, a strange, weird document opened and printed right, and not saved and not and then not found. Right. It's hard, dude. That's that's yeah. Come on. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Like that one. Th- that one's just like. Oh, I don't know. Like, I, I, we need to figure that one out as quickly as possible, I think. Yeah, I think so, too. That might be our big break, I think. once it, It's either going to be the break, like, to for us to be like, oh, yeah, okay, this is open and shut, or it's going to be, it's going to open a million doors. Yeah. Like, I don't know. That sounded redundant. But, but like Bob said, I mean, if it, if it was printed there, it's, it, you know, it's almost certainly her. Mm-hmm. For sure. So where what what did he what do we have to do to find that answer? I mean, there's there's got to be some other explanation, you know. I, I like they said, like with the finger, the that there's almost like a fingerprint when they print. See, I remember he said that, and like I, 
I brought that up a few months ago, mm-hmm. and I'm trying to remember if that was fact or if that was in like a CSI episode. Yeah. Like, I can't remember because I remember distinctly hearing that somewhere that there was some sort of ink, almost like a fingerprint ink mark mm-hmm. that a, every printer puts on a piece of paper, like a little, a small little signature yeah. that's usually, I don't know how small it is. I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. I'm looking at this piece of paper right here. And nothing looks out of the ordinary. But but there's there's got to be things that could that could trigger you know I, and maybe not every printer does it but like 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 so, flaws in the letter yeah like a flaw in the letter or like our printer at work for whatever reason mm-hmm. and this is just a weird thing but like it'll smudge like one line but it's always like way down here but it'll smudge part of it for whatever reason right on every page there's like a smudge like three quarters of the way down the line. That, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, maybe there's some thing that that does. Right. Actually, there was some good discussion in there while you were gone. Because Mike, Mike and I even talked about, you know, the coincidence of of the timing of that note and where it could be. And, and if it was Lloyd, let's say he printed out something that was important, it seems like it would be set in a place that he wouldn't forget it. Right. You know, I, I wonder if it... Um and, and, and sorry, everybody, I had to step out for a minute until the guys continued on without me, which is fine. I was listening from the other side of the door, so I didn't want to interrupt you. Um, I wonder if it doesn't have something to do, if it was Lloyd, mm-hmm. if it doesn't have something to do with the tree work or the con- you know, concerts or something, like he, you know, did he have to type something out that said, you know, Deb's going to approve the trees or. Oh, okay. Yeah. You know, I mean, Deb's, Deb's never said that to mm-hmm. my knowledge. So I, I, I doubt it, but it's just racking my brain and, and, you know, and, and it's, it, you can't not consider that it was the, the murder, the, 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 the leg note, mm-hmm. but man, it's just hard to, it's hard to wrap my brain around her sitting down and typing that out before the murders. Yeah. You know, cause if you think of like, well, well, it was premeditated maybe. Mm-hmm. Well, so. Let's say her her plan was to kill them. She knows that after she kills them, she'll have all the time in the world to sit down and write that note. Mm-hmm. Why sit down and do it when when her mom's not even home? The notes the notes perplexing because in my opinion, it's hard to really theorize either way. Yeah, a scenario that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. But that my biggest thing is I just I hate coincidences. Right, I hate that on the morning they died. You know, an hour to two to three hours before they died, a quick note was opened, printed, not saved. Right. And we don't know where it is. That doesn't mean that it was. That doesn't mean anything. You know, right. like you said, it could have been a note and, and Deb took it with her to right. say, I approve these trees. Uh-huh. But it's just strange to me that like, let's say if it was Lloyd and it was something he needed for work, that it was a quick thing. Yeah. I feel like if I print something out that I need, I need to set it somewhere. Well, for all we know, it was in his pocket. It could have been. You know, that's that that's the problem. There's so many holes, but I'm with you. The the coincidence I mean, that's that's why Deb was was convicted mm-hmm. was because of coincidences. It well, either because of coincidence or because there's all these little trails of circumstantial evidence that lead to her. You know, the cuts on her finger. It's either a coincidence that she cut her finger and blood on the scene, or she did it because, you know, that happened because she killed him. Mm-hmm. She she would she would be very unlucky if she didn't kill her parents. Mm-hmm. That these things all kind of pointed back to her. It's just unfortunate that a thorough enough investigation wasn't done to to answer these questions. I just I just feel like if that note was printed on that on that printer, I feel like they could have proved it. Yeah, without without to me like without question they could have proved it. it. And the fact that they didn't 
is just I don't know. It's bad. Like like I said, there's other there's other avenues they could have done it. So I think that is a I think is far a very viable path to finding the truth here. Like Mike 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 said earlier, kind of um, you know it, it's it's a bummer to think about. You know it's it's discouraging, but to me it's not. I mean I'm I don't have a dog in this fight. All I want to do is find the truth. Mm-hmm. And so if we can test that computer, and it turns out that note it was that note printed at ten one a.m. In my opinion, that pretty much, I mean, I'd be done with the case. I would, I would report to you guys. Sounds like Deb's guilty. I can't see any, I don't, I don't know who else came in the house at 10, you know, mm-hmm. an hour before the murders while Lloyd was there and printed the note and then what left. And then they came home and Agnes took a nap and then that person came back. I mean, no, if, if that note was printed on the printer, then, then I think Deb did, did it. No questions asked. Um, so to me, that is. That's something that might be easier to do than than some of the DNA testing because we don't know how stuff was was filled. And I think it could give us the answer. Unfortunately, the sad part about it is if we find out that note wasn't printed on the computer, that doesn't exonerate them. You know, it takes one more circumstantial element away from her case, mm-hmm. but that doesn't doesn't. I mean, it gets tricky because she doesn't have a computer at home. But of course, you can hypothesize. Well, maybe she went down to the public library and typed up the note and printed it and put it in her pocket. I mean, who, who knows? Mm-hmm. But th- that's an avenue. I know we need to move on. We got a lot of we got a lot more questions. But um, yeah, the, the note the note thing's interesting. I don't know I, the way I looked at it last week when I was researching writing the episode. In my mind, it just seemed like there was too many hoops to jump through for that to be Deb to have written it. The more I thought about it, and people pointed more stuff out to me, like well, you know what what if it's Agnes that changes the font? Because you know, in my in my my immediate thought was, well. What Agnes printed her stuff with is the default for that computer. Mm-hmm. So therefore, if something's printed with a different font, it was probably a different computer. And but, could be, but like I said, that we see one document that has that font. Right. Yeah. We don't know that that is the default font. It could have been an accident. Yeah. And I'm I'm hoping you know if we can. I know we're I know for sure next week I'm getting into the district clerk's office, so I'll have some more information. Still working on trying to get into the PD, you know, in the pandemic stuff. But I'm hoping we'll find. I'm hoping they took more pictures that we don't. I know they had to. They had to have taken more pictures. Well, we know for a fact there were things that were referenced at trial that he took photos of that we don't have the photos of. So hopefully uh, we'll get some more information on that. But for now, let's go ahead and move on to the next question. Sarah has two questions. Her first question is: In your experience, what are the reasons for an investigation to jump almost immediately into a suspect-driven investigation? Which of those reasons do you see present in the Courtney investigation? Usually it it has to do with tunnel vision, and it's usually a legitimate reason, uh, which it is in this case, uh, in, in my opinion. So, you know, whether Deb's innocent or guilty, what happened was Hardy saw the cuts on her fingers, knew she was there, and in my opinion, thinks she didn't, and I'm using air quotes, act right when they went to inform her of her parents' death and interviewed her which could be because due to her mental conditions and her medications that she was on. Um, but so he had legitimate reasons to suspect her. Uh, and I think that that just jumped him into, she must do it. And in this case, I think it might be that, you know, a motivation to, you know, this was another cop and they're, and they're highly motivated to solve this case and bring his killer to justice. And, you know, because of that, he might have, you know, just taken that first lead, assume she did it, and just be the type of person that just once he locks his brain into something, just can't come off it. And again, he might have got the right person, but there's no, there's no question throughout this investigation that it was 100% suspect driven, and they weren't looking at any other leads. They were only looking at depth. Her next question is, when did the police release the Courtney house, and who had access to it after it was released? 
That's a good question. Something I didn't have time to cover in this week's episode. I don't know the date it was released, but I know it was well before the the trash can lid was found. So that was July 23rd when Brenda's attorney's wife found the trash can lid. Two months later, or two months earlier, in May, Brenda's attorneys were in the house again and contacted uh, Detective Hardy or one of the police officers to let him know that things had been moved in the house. So, so remember, this is two months before they found the trash can lid. They went in, and these are all in the handwritten notes, uh, that they went in and everything was like stacked up by the front door or something like that. And they want to know who was there. And as it turned out, the locksmith that had went in and changed the locks had gone in and moved a bunch of shit around uh, because it sounds like if I was reading it right, he was going to buy the house. And so he was moving stuff around. So again, as far as that evidence that was found there afterwards, you know, there was her attorneys. Uh, I think Deb and Brenda had been in the house. There was a note that, that that Deb had called Brenda and said when she goes to the house, she wants to go with her. The locksmith had been in the house. The attorney, the attorney's wife, things had been moved around um, all before that trash can lid was found. Lauren says, is there any record of where the garbage can lid was between the initial crime scene and when it was brought in for evidence testing eight months later? No, we don't have that information. I've been told by um, Judge Dauphineau that it was um, Brenda's attorneys that found it, she said, under a bed in the back bedroom. But that's just anecdote. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't have any evidence to support that. Um, but I will point out that it was a couple months later when I was reading the report that sure enough, it actually was the, uh, her attorneys that found it. and It was not the police as far as found the blood spot on it. Which I, can we talk about that for a second? What do you, what do you think about the fact that three cr- trained crime scene investigators or multiple trained crime scene investigators looked at that lid and said there was nothing on it? And then eight months later, this, uh, the attorney's wife looks at it and says, Oh, look, there's blood. And it was blood. It's really strange to me. I mean, that, that, that's one of the big hangups for me is, is that particular spot of blood because the photographs, I mean, it's clear. The photographs that I, I believe I've seen of it, it's pretty clear that there's a blood spot on it. About the size of it. And I'm trying to find it again. It was buried in a file somewhere. I've mm-hmm. shown it to you, but yeah. I was going to upload it to the site and I couldn't find where I put it. So yeah, hopefully that along with some testimony is going to get added to the episode nine folder. But it just doesn't, I mean, it seems pretty obvious that that's something. It's like the size of a fingerprint. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know how they just bypassed that and decided that wasn't worth looking at. Not only just bypassed it, but specifically said they all looked at it to see if there was anything on it. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they, they just completely bypassed it. You know, in the Melgar case, when they found the blood on the safe, they just said, oh, it's Jamie's. And they didn't test it. Right. But like this, they're just they're just totally ignoring the fact that it was there. Or it really wasn't there when they saw it. Yeah, well, in my opinion, it's pretty clear that it wasn't. I mean, mm-hmm. it wasn't like they didn't see it or said they had a reason not. They said they looked at the lid. He brought in other CSIs to examine it, and they all determined there was nothing there. Mm-hmm. And that's when I start to, again, go back to the having some real problems with the investigation. Because, you know, in my opinion, if anything dishonest and inappropriate is done during the investigation. If, if there's if there's corruption within the investigation, then the entire investigation is corrupt, in my opinion. So if we look at that, if you look at a can that trash can lid that had nothing on it, eight months later, oh look, there's a big blood spot on there, and it happens to be Deborah's. That's super suspicious. And if it and, and if something was done like 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 you know that that evidence was planted or anything like anything like that, well then now you can't believe anything in the in the mm-hmm. in, in the case. If the police department is willing 
to do that, then you can't trust anything. I'm not saying that happened, but it sure as hell is pretty suspicious. Well, and it could it could lead back that it was Deborah's, but down the road. Maybe she went back over there to clean and got right. blood on it. And then they turn it and they said, oh, they swab it and it really is Deborah's. Mm-hmm. And they just didn't want to buy her excuse that it was from a later time. Right. Shannon says, have you reached out to Christina Glenn, a lawyer in Fort Worth? The name Christina Glenn shows up on a document file name on the computer forensics and was accessed in the month prior to the murders. She specializes in family law, estates, probate, etc. I wonder if there's a way to figure out what she was working on with the Courtney's. Well, they won't. An attorney can't share that information with me. But I was interested when I found that because another thing that Judge Dauphino, who, again, was very, very close with with her aunt, Agnes, uh, told me when I first started speaking with her about the case was that due to the um, estranged probably isn't the right word, but the the relationship with Brenda, how she had just kind of stopped coming around, like they would see her maybe at a holiday or a birthday or something, but just wasn't involved in the Courtney's life anymore. She told me that the Courtney's had been meeting with an estate attorney and they were they were redoing their will and that the plan was to write Brenda out of the will. Oh, that's a really interesting find. I didn't realize that. Yeah. Well, and I, I've hesitated to bring it up because, you know, there there's a lot of things that Judge Dofano has told me, but it's I I don't want to just put stuff out there if there's nothing to back it up with. Not not, you know, I'm sure everything she's saying is is true and accurate to the best of her knowledge, but I need to have evidence backing it up. And in this case, now I see that, okay, they were meeting uh, and, and had contact with an estate attorney, uh, which, which, which seems to corroborate what Judge Dovino had told me that uh, it sounds like they were, they were, they were going to write her out of the will. Also, there's another, did you notice there was another note? You, oh, you probably didn't go through the documents. I didn't bring it up in the episode, but there's in the handwritten notes, they had, uh, Hardy had spoken with uh, Billy Ray Sinkafee, Sinkafield the nephew, and they asked him if, and maybe it was in the report and I just don't remember it, but I remember it jumped out at me this time that they said, you know, who do they think could have hurt them? And they seemed to be questioning him from the notes about if it was a family member. And he said, he thinks that if any family member would have done this to them, it would have been Brenda. Hmm. Which is interesting. Which doesn't mean anything more than Brenda saying she thinks it was Deb. But if, you know, if, if that's out there, then I think that should be out there too. Yeah, that's really interesting. Okay, and her follow-up to that is, do you have a copy of the Courtney's will? I don't, but hopefully that'll be um, something that, if, if it was if it was entered into evidence at trial, then we should be able to get a hold of it next week at the clerk's office. Because what we don't have is, we don't have any of the dis, the um, the exhibits from trial. They were never turned over to us um, in our open records request, which I have, I, I requested from police department and the DA's office, and uh, IPTX already had uh, stuff from the clerk's office as far as the... Uh, trial transcripts and stuff. Um, so I don't know if anybody's, re- anybody's ever requested it, but uh, that's one thing we're going to go look at, get copies of, are the actual exhibits from trial. Tiffany says, have you reached out to Brenda at all to confirm her comments and to see why she was so quick to point the finger at Deb? No, I, I haven't for a couple of reasons. One, the same reason I hadn't, re- hadn't reached out to Deb until now is because I didn't even know which questions to ask yet because I had a lot more, you know, we needed to get do a lot of digging to know, to have a better picture of the case before we start asking questions. And again, I have finally written to Deb now, so we should start getting some of those answers. And also, just from my understanding, she has no desire to speak with any media whatsoever. That's what I've been told. And if you look at the media on the cases between newspaper articles, TV news reports, 
uh, the episode of Snap, these you you don't see Brenda appearing or speaking in any of those. So it's it's just not something I've de- dedicated a lot of time to yet. Solomon says, was a copy of the surveillance video from Target ever provided to the defense, and or did the detective ever have a copy of it? No, it was never turned over to the defense, and and we don't know. I mean, according to the report, Hardy never got a copy of it. He never documented that he did get a copy of it. If he did get a copy of it, then Fort Worth PD, I guess, would be in violation of the Open Records Act or FOIA because they didn't turn it over to me. Uh, but that's some of the some of the things that we're trying to find out when we get to Texas, when we actually get our hands on the files. All right. And I pulled this from an email from listener Heather. I find it really fascinating, and I think it really works towards how beneficial our crowdsourcing model is for the podcast. She writes, I've trained in handwriting transcription for about eight years, mostly old English and records from the past few centuries. I thought I would look at the words you mentioned during your most recent podcast to see if I can lend a hand. In handwriting transcription, one of the most important tools is comparing the letter in question with words that are already known in the document being transcribed. If you look at the word evidence, two lines below the word in question, the two D's appear to match. Further, if you look through the rest of his notes, you will see that the D's are fairly consistent in the odd way in which he writes it. Comparing it to a lowercase j was more difficult, as I could only find a few examples of a lowercase j. For examples, on page 7 he writes the word just in which the J looks like a proper lowercase j. Also at the bottom of the page in the margin, he writes the word injuries, with the J looking like the one in just. I am fairly confident to say that the letter that begins the word is a D, as his Ds are fairly consistent throughout the notes. I think that the word is a misspelling of the word do, D-O, and instead he wrote do, D-U-E. What do you take away from this, Bob? Oh, I, th- I think Heather's exactly right, and, and several other listeners, uh, much less detailed, uh, had come to the same conclusion. And actually, I kind of came to that same conclusion, too. So what, to be clear, what we're talking about is in the notation, the handwritten notation about the DNA evidence, it says, Carla cannot blank the DNA evidence at this time. And when I read it, I read it as do, as though it was misspelled. So D-U-E, uh, which, which should be do, which is what she said here. Um, but my thought was, am I just, I didn't, I didn't go through that thorough of an analysis. It just looked like maybe that's a D, maybe a U, maybe an E. And I thought, well, is my brain just doing that because that's the word I expect to be there? And so I didn't, I just said what they looked like because I didn't want to put my thoughts into anybody's mind when you guys all started digging, digging into this. And everybody seemed to come to the same conclusion based on a, a very thorough handwriting analysis that it looks like what he wrote was Carla cannot do this DNA testing at this time. And he spelled do wrong. He spelled a D-U-E instead of D-O. So um, that, that, that was a good catch. That's a very, very detailed analysis. And I think that we can kind of put that one to, into bed because you can go letter by letter and see what those letters were. Weird misspelling, but I guess that that's what happened. All right, that's it for questions this week. Thanks, everybody, for writing in. Yep, thanks, everybody. Sorry, I, I don't know how Mike's going to edit this thing together. We had... Uh, a few interruptions. I had to step out of the room. There's a uh, an internet repairman outside drilling holes in the walls while we're while we're recording. So hopefully Mike gets all this cut together. Thank you guys for being patient and putting up with us. And uh, make sure you tune in on Sunday and the day after that. I'm leaving for Texas. And hopefully for next week we'll have some new information for you. And uh, for this Sunday we have a special guest. I was actually able to reach out and get a hold of and interview. Dr. Margarita Avalos.
Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing, and all music for the show was created and composed by PutThemInASong.com. Our follow-up logo was created by Zach Weaver, and all of our font across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedIntandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Charlena White, Kay Wood Yamnick, Ginger Fiola, Edith Swanneck, Lindsay Pease, and Jen Reese in Candela. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we also have reward levels. For just $5 per month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes videos of the creation of our Friday follow-up episodes that include 10 to 30 minutes of pre-show bonus chat. Other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. Lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. If you have a new case you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. To follow our personal accounts on social media, I can be found at BobRuffTruth. Mike can be found at MurbGaming, M-U-R-R-B-G-A-M-I-N-G. Zach can be found at Z to the Q. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, and tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. I'm Zach Weaver. And I'm Mike Bussing. This has been Truth and Justice. Just, just, yeah, you figure, figure out a spot to clean that up, Mike. Good luck on this one. Just say right. Right. That's all I needed. <laughs> I didn't remember what he said. It's fine. Shannon says. Can I give you a better right? I'm not, I don't know if I'm happy with that right. Yeah, just more agreeance. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Dude, that was like almost identical. The last time I was like, right. And this time I was like, right. right. You could give There's me our that, bloopers you right there. You could give there. me like the sarcastic <laughs> yeah. one. Give me, you can give me the sarcastic, right? Really? Like, right. <laughs> <laughs>